Um, this morning, we are uh, continuing our series in the Gospel of John called Come and See. Uh, now, we're doing things just a little bit differently in that we are not being comprehensive uh, in our study of John. Uh, we cannot hit every single passage and every story as we go through it. But if you would like, you can follow along uh, with a reading plan that we have on the Church Center app as well as the website. Uh, if you go there, hcclinuxville.ca slash John, you will see that reading plan uh, each week and you can follow along, whether personally, uh, your family, in your small group, whatever it might be, uh, and I commend that to you. Usually, we're skipping around a little bit, but this week, I really believe the passage that we're in uh, kind of piggybacks well on what we talked about last week with the raising of the dead, raising from the dead of Lazarus. And this week we are looking at a much smaller story, uh, but one that comes shortly after that in John chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 8. And so if you have uh, your Bible, or whether digital or print, uh, with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with us to John chapter 12. And I'll be reading the first eight verses there. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your instruction, for your story, for your revelation to us in your word this beautiful love letter to us, allowing us to get to know you and your attributes and character and your great love for mankind and your mission to redeem us to yourself through your long-promised Messiah, your very Son, Jesus. I pray this morning that we would worship well, that we would get to know you well so that we might worship well in all that we do. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, as I'm thinking about missions this week and traveling, uh, this is going to be my third trip to Costa Rica. I've, I've traveled uh, a, a fair amount, not as much as, as some of you I recognize. I was a missions pastor for a while, and that took me uh, overseas quite a bit more often. And I was thinking about uh, a time that I was in Brazil. I happened to be going and uh, doing another trip, and it worked out to tag on um, a, a sort of side trip uh, in Brazil to visit with and encourage some partners that we had uh, that were doing a recovery ministry outside of Rio de Janeiro. 
Um, and basically what this was was a, 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 you know, a, a little camp, a little bit rural area uh, where men would come. Uh, they had uh, you know, drug addictions and they were homeless and they were alcoholics and uh, estranged from family or had uh, deep debts or other poor decisions that they'd made in life. And this was a place for them to recuperate. Uh, and I did some, some teaching and some workshops there. Uh, and it was a wonderful time. It was also a very cross-cultural experience for me. And I mean that more than just uh, linguistically in, in Brazilian culture. And I found there something that I have found often in places where there is that kind of recovery ministry, where our times of worship were much more fervent than I was used to. Uh, I was also at the time employed by a Presbyterian church, and so any raising of the hands and you're like, whoa, hang on there, <laughs> hey. And coming to this place where there was much more shouting and jumping and down on the ground and dancing around and things that, I'll be honest with you, I was very uncomfortable during those times. I don't say it's right or wrong. I'm just saying I was uncomfortable during this time. And let me give you just one brief example here uh, during one of these times of, of the man who is leading. This was very typical of the way that he would pray and others would pray and wail and have tears. And, and, I, and I know some of it was cross-cultural, but other times, uh, you know, I had a translator that we had hired there for the week and he was trying his best to keep me up to speed. And there were times when he'd be like, uh, you know, like this is a Brazilian guy from there. And he's like, this is strange. Um, and, and there are times when I was very uncomfortable, but I believe that there is something in that. There is something to be learned from experiences like that. And in fact, in a place where people had a very different life experience from me, it was easy for me to look at their forms of worship and to say, that's strange. And to, to have some form of judgment even. And I believe that there is something in that, in the way that Mary worships Jesus during this dinner leading up to Passover. And what I want to look at today is this idea that a great Lord who extends abundant mercy is worthy of lavish praise. I am not saying this because I want our worship to look just like that one. I am not saying we're doing it wrong or anything like that. All that I want to do is to challenge our perspective a little bit, and maybe some of you are like me, you know, cold and dead inside and recovering Presbyterians who are a, a, little, a little bit cynical about some things. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one, who knows? But I wanna look at this a little bit. So let's dive in here and look closely, starting in verse one. Six days before Passover, this starts. So what, what we have here is a, is a kind of countdown to Passover. In fact, even in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, in verse 55, you can see now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the big holiday that everyone is getting ready for. We've already done this twice in the book of John. 
And we know at every single festival, every holiday, every celebration that the Jews held dear, we have the same thing at Sukkot and at uh, the, the Feast of Dedication or what we call Hanukkah, even the Sabbath. Jesus is creating some kind of stir. Jesus is going to stand up and say, yep, this is about me. And so even as this Passover approaches, you can kind of feel the tension of like, is he going to show up? Is he going to do this again? And so what we have now for the rest of the Gospel of John is this week. And there is this countdown to Passover. And I think there is so much about Jesus fulfilling the, the sort of picture that these festivals gave to the Jewish people that it bears some understanding. And so I'll take this opportunity to plug our event next month, this Messiah and the Passover Seder banquet meal that we're going to have. Let me commend that to you, that this is going to be a time, yes, we're going to eat and we're going to celebrate in much the same way that Jesus did with his disciples, but it's also going to be a time of learning. I hope that we all learn something uh, about what this is and why all of the elements really truly did point to the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. And as we keep going in this verse 1, you have Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So already we're connecting the two stories from the previous chapter now to this one. And it's, it's a little ironic because that is how the previous story was introduced. Here this story is, is about Mary and we're referencing this thing with Lazarus. If you look back at chapter 11, we had, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, but that hadn't happened yet. So it's like John is introducing this story, but saying, hey, you remember that thing that hasn't happened yet in the narrative? And it's, it's uh, it, you know, a little telling, and, and we'll get there, <laughs> why I think that is in just a minute. Um, and then what, what you have is this family, whom Jesus is good, close friends with, invites him to dinner. And they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served. And of course she did. <laughs> if, you're, if you're familiar at all with these characters from Scripture, and you read, and Martha served, you go, yeah, that sounds like Martha. And so there are really only three stories in the Bible that talk about this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and their relationship to Jesus. The first was just, or the one was just mentioned with Lazarus being raised from the dead, but already in that story, if you recall from last week, there is a established relationship that they have. They're close friends. The other story comes from Luke chapter 10, when, uh, you know, it, it gives the impression that this is kind of when Jesus meets them and he's dining with them in their home and Martha is doing a whole bunch of stuff, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And what did Mary do during that time? She didn't help at all. Maybe some of you are looking at relatives or, or disobedient children like, yeah, remember last Christmas when you didn't help? No, <laughs> but Jesus actually affirms what Mary does. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus and listens while he is teaching. Martha kind of chastises her and he even says, hey, Jesus, can't you tell her? 
And Jesus says, no, she is doing the more important thing. And so already, I think, in this story in John chapter 12, we're making allusions to these other two times that we have gotten to know Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And I think that it is really helpful in understanding Mary's relationship with Jesus, but also her unique understanding. What she does here in taking a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointing his feet and wiping her hair, it's kind of strange, but it also kind of reveals that she knows something that other people don't. Jesus even affirms this. Mary has this unique understanding, probably because of her close and intimate relationship with Jesus. Mary is the one who said, forget serving, I wanna listen to everything this guy says. Mary is the one who weeps with Jesus, who sees her brother raised from the dead, knowing this is the Son of God. Whatever he asks, God is going to, to hear him and bless him and give him that thing. She understands who Jesus is in a way that nobody else does, even his disciples, as we'll see. Mary understands that a great Lord who extends abundant mercy is worthy of lavish praise. <laughs> but what she does here in taking the expensive ointment and wiping it on his feet and then using her hair, this strikes me as strange. I read this and I go, that's a little weird. I think I would be uncomfortable with that. And here's the thing, I am not the only one, okay? I think that this is not an everyday, ordinary practice. For one thing, we already know that Mary is known for this, okay? In chapter 11, it starts out Mary, you know, the one who was wiping Jesus's feet with her hair and poured the, the ointment on. Like, there's this kind of, like, this is what she is known for. You know, if I, if someone was trying to reference someone, you're like, you know, Gary, Gary Smith, Gary Smith, he works at the auto parts store. I, Gary, you know the one with the pet raccoon that he dresses in a leotard and walks every day around City Hall with? Yes, okay, that guy. Why wouldn't you start with that? Yeah, I know that guy. That's kind of what they're saying, like, hey, this is Mary. You know, the one who did the thing with the ointment and the hair and the feet? Like, yeah, that one. <laughs> and we see this in the response, not just from Judas, but as we learn and we read this same story in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, it is more of the disciples that have a similar response, a sort of critical response in the way that they look and they go, ah, uh, that's not what I would do. I'm uncomfortable with that, or I, I would have done it differently, or surely there's a better way. We should correct her, right, Jesus? And as if they didn't learn, you know, that went over so well when Martha tried to do that. And Jesus affirms her. Because in short, as we ask, what kind of person does that? What kind of person would do something so strange and so intimate? In short, someone who has seen Jesus work. 
In short, someone who has sat at his feet and soaked up every single word of his teaching. Someone who gets it and understands what's about to happen. Not just that, but why it's about to happen. Someone who has been in the depths of despair and in the midst of her profound grief sees Jesus work and bring her up out of the pit and raise the dead to life again. Someone who understands that a great Lord who extends abundant mercy is worthy of lavish praise. And so that's exactly what she does. Mary understands what is about to happen to Jesus. Even as she does this thing, Jesus himself kind of tells everyone, just so you know, this is, she's anointing me for my burial. This is a practice that people would do more with dead bodies that they're about to bury. Not to this extent, not the whole bottle, not all, you know. She pours it out lavishly, but Jesus is kind of highlighting, yeah, this is for my burial. This is because I'm going to die. And you know who understands this? Mary does. More than that, Mary understands why. Mary understands the power of resurrection, the necessity of resurrection, because she's seen it happen. She's seen and heard Jesus teach about it. She has heard from his very lips himself, I am the resurrection and the life. She understands what is going down this week in a way that the rest of the disciples are like, what? Betrayed? Never. Mary gets it, even when they don't. Mary understands. But it also begs the question, not just what kind of person would do this, who else would do this? What other people might do this? And as you're reading this story, maybe some of it sounds familiar, and you say, oh yeah, that's because I see this in other gospels. Now, the accounts of this story in Matthew and Mark and in John, they are the same story. They have the same details and they are in lockstep. However, there is another story from the Gospel of Luke which can easily be misconstrued and misunderstood as being the same incident. Now, let me pause for a second and remind us again when we study scripture, when we look intently at scripture, and we do the process of observation, there are six things that I recommend you look for. Look for things that are emphasized, repeated, related, alike, different, and true to life. And as you read through scripture, and as you take note of things, and as you saturate your life and your mind with scripture, I hope that more and more when you read, you get this tingly sense of going, this feels familiar. I've read this before. This sounds like something I've heard before. And in Luke chapter 7, we see a number of similarities and also differences. And most scholars believe, and I agree with them, that this is a different incident, a different woman. There are enough details that are different that make us go, yeah, this is two different things. But there are also enough similarities that I think John the author is trying to draw our attention to this. The fact that perfume is used and it's his feet that are anointed and the woman uses her hair to wipe Jesus's feet 
And uh, the fact that it's uh, 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 met with a cynical response, you know, those that are there criticize it and go, well, what is she doing? All of those details are the same. The event in Luke chapter 7 is a little bit different because Luke adds some details about this woman. It's a different woman that she's a sinful woman. Maybe she's a prostitute, we're led to believe. And that she even anoints Jesus' feet with her tears mixed in with the perfume. And in fact, Jesus has some follow-up teaching on this incident where he tells a parable about two different men who owe debts, one a, a little bit of a debt and the other a huge debt, and both debts are forgiven. And Jesus says, which one of those people do you th think loved the debtor more? the one who is forgiven more. And so there is this sense of what kind of person does this kind of act, does this kind of silly, over-the-top, lavish thing, someone who understands the profound mercy of our Lord, someone who has been at their deepest, darkest point and has seen breakthrough and has seen forgiveness and has seen emancipation from a slavery of, of all the things that this world traps us in. And Jesus offers them freedom. Someone who has been at their depths and has been set free understands things that maybe those of us that haven't been through that kind of life don't get. A great Lord who extends abundant mercy is worthy of lavish praise because those that have been forgiven much have a lot of gratitude. And then we move on to verse 4 in John chapter 12. And we see, but Judas Iscariot, here's where we, there's some pushback. <laughs> One of his disciples he who was about to betray him said, and I love this parenthetical phrase, because it re like the author John here is really going out of his way to let you know, like, this is the bad guy. You know, it's like in a movie when you know it's the bad guy because of the creepy music and the dark lighting and he's smoking a cigarette or kicking a puppy or whatever. Like, so you know, oh, like, that's the bad guy. Like, John has to let you know. He's, he's making a comparison between the two people. Like, oh, you know. Judas here, oh, this schmuck, he gets up and he says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And here is where I am a little bit uncomfortable as I sit and I read and I study scripture sometimes, because I look at this and I think to myself, you know, Judas Iscariot has a point. <laughs> which is always uncomfortable if you ever, I don't know if you're ever watching a movie and you're just like, I don't know, Thanos makes some good, you know, we should listen to him a little bit, you know, like, <clears throat> or if you see like some evil mastermind's origin story and you relate too hard, you're like, yeah, I get it. I know what he's going, oh no. Um, <clears throat> that's kind of how I feel right now with reading about Judas Iscariot. If you had to pick like one bad guy from the Bible, he at least makes the top five. Like I read this and I go, I'm with him. I don't know. <laughs> I frequently will look at things and I go, why? We could have used that money to give to the poor. We could have used that money for this other thing. We could have done this for this project. I, I worked at, uh, I'll be frank, a very wealthy church um, before, and uh, 
we, we were very blessed. I was the missions pastor and I had a massive budget and we gave away so much money for gospel work and it was wonderful and good and I appreciated it. But there were some times that I would go, we're spending how much on a stained glass window? We, uh, this is just an example, like we, we, we bought a new organ that cost more money than the building project we're proposing over here, okay? So let me, like just to put it into perspective, and I'm going, couldn't we have used that to plant, I don't know, 12 churches in Africa? I don't know, couldn't we have used that money to do more recovery programs in Latin America? Couldn't we have done this to reach rural Americans, some native reservations, some, I mean, uh, the, the ideas were just popping in my mind, and then I read a story like this, and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> maybe I need to check myself a little bit. <clears throat> but the point here is that G, excuse me, G, Judas, it's very important not to mix these two up. <laughs> Judas has impure motives. And in fact, the author tells us this. He's planning on embezzling these, these funds. But even if he wasn't, even if he really did think, why can't we use this for the poor? The way that Jesus chastises him hits right at the heart of the motives behind it. The motive behind everything we do should be to glorify God. Amen. The point that he is making here when Jesus says, you won't always have the poor, but I, or you'll always have the poor, you won't always have me right here in front of you, is because all of this is to glorify Jesus. Amen. Everything that we do should be to glorify our Lord. Everything that we, should, that we do should be an exercise of lavish praise on the one who has given us so much grace and mercy and compassion. And you will never hear me not advocate for the ministries that we do that touch people in this community. You will never hear me not advocate for our seniors' lunch or the meal that we serve at Christmas or our food bank. Should we absolutely uh, do that food bank? Yes, of course we should. Is it possible to do good things for impure motives? Yes. Is it possible to serve and give of your time with impure motives? Yeah. Is it possible to give money with impure motives so that people look at you and think, oh, what a great and generous person that is? Yes, all of that is possible. And when someone in this community asks you, as people will ask me with some frequency, oh, you're the church that does that food bank. Oh, that's really cool. Why do you guys do that? Do not miss the opportunity to point to God. I would be furious to learn if one of you said, well, you know, we just don't want anyone to go hungry and we had some extra food lying around. No! <laughs> you know, Kathy, she's just, she needed something to do. She was bored, didn't have enough going on. No! <laughs> she's laughing hardest because she knows that's not the case. <laughs> Tell them 
Absolutely, we have been given so much. We serve a God who is abundant, abounding in steadfast mercy and grace and forgiveness toward us. And we are so filled with his love that we cannot help but spill over and let it pour out into this community and this country and to the uttermost parts of the world because we serve a great Lord who extends abundant mercy and he is worthy of our lavish praise in everything that we do. Tell them that. You're free to paraphrase. But (laughs) don't miss the opportunity to say everything that we do is for God. Everything that we do is to lift high the name of Jesus because it is by his mercy that we can even have a relationship with God our Father. That's the whole ballgame. That's all of it. So what? When I look at what we ought to do here, when I look at how we should view our own rituals of worship or practices or behaviors of worship, I don't think that we need to buy expensive perfume and pour pure nard on, you know, like, but I do think that there is something that we ought to learn about the way that we worship. And the first is this. It builds into this broader theme of come and see. We need to listen to Jesus the way that Mary did. We need to set aside our religious expectations and assumptions about who the Messiah ought to be and instead listen and learn at the feet of our God and Savior, Jesus. We need to be able to say, how am I listening How am I learning? How am I growing? How am I accepting John's invitation to come and experience Jesus on his terms and not on my own assumptions and expectations? The second is our worship should have a pure motive, God's glory. And in whatever you do and whatever your behaviors of worship, it's good to occasionally kind of check yourself and to say, am I giving this money so that I look more grandiose and I get a hospital wing named after me or whatever it is? Am I serving in this way so that I can improve my networking skills in the community and people know, oh, that's a good selfless guy. He always volunteers. Am I worshiping in a way that is just more about attention to me and bringing attention and glory to myself? We can do good things with impure motives. And let me challenge you, whatever your act of worship may be, check your motive and make sure that it is to bring glory and honor and praise to our Lord. It should always be God's glory. And finally, I want to say this. I think that we ought to be careful how we judge other people's worship. I think that we need to have a little bit of humility We need to pause long enough to be able to say, what maybe do I not understand that they do? What can I learn from the way somebody else worships God? And I have to tell you, when I am around most recovery ministries, 
I find this to be the case. It wasn't just in Brazil. Uh, one of the partners that we had at my church in Florida was Teen Challenge, people that were recovering from addictions, and we would frequently host uh, these worship nights with them. And it was the same kind of like, boy, I don't know that this Presbyterian church has ever seen this level of, of worship and noise and down on knees and crying and weeping and all of that stuff. And I, <coughs> I fully admit, I think that sometimes there is impure motive even in that. Sometimes there is disingenuous worship, that worship that is more about attention seek. I fully, fully acknowledge that. But there are also times when I think to myself, you know, I am no better than the drug addict. I am no better than the prostitute. I am no better than the junkie, the adulterer, the launderer, the whatever it is. I too have been saved by God's grace, but I, I maybe don't quite see and know and experience it the same way that some of my brothers and sisters do. And maybe if I knew, maybe if I had just a small taste of really what it was that these people have gone through and the depth of their understanding of God's mercy and grace towards them, if I knew that, maybe I too would be on my face. Maybe I too would be weeping with joy and gratitude towards a God who has lavished his love on me and what other response could I have except to shout with lavish praise towards him. When I was in Brazil, the very last day that I was there, um, they, they said, we have a surprise for you. We've prepared a special song. And they brought me up and they wanted me to stand up front. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what, the other ones weren't special? Like what's, like, what's coming now? Oh, man. And they had been working all week long, knowing that I was coming, on a special song that they wanted to bless me with before I left. And I was able to record some of it. this song in English. Thank you for loving and setting me free. Thank you for giving your life just for me. Lord, I thank you. Jesus, I thank you. Even though they were singing in a language that they didn't understand, I think that they understood those words better than I did. And I think sometimes my own cold, cynical heart needs to be drawn a little bit more towards God's heart and the way that I lavish my praise on him. And it blessed me greatly. It was one of the highlights of my trip and a memory that I'll take with me always.
Because a great Lord who extends abundant mercy is worthy of lavish praise. And there's something that I want to try here and now that might be a little bit more practical, but might also be a little bit uncomfortable. I want to, during this last song, invite you to worship in this spirit, to worship with pure motives, not in an intention-seeking or obstreperous way, but in a way that says, I serve a great God who extends abundant mercy, and he is worthy of my lavish praise. And there might be times when in this building we feel a little more uncomfortable raising our hands or clapping or shouting or kneeling or praying or weeping. And let me encourage you, nobody's going to judge you today. However you understand and see and know and experience God's mercy in your life, let it out in this last song. May we be a people that are not afraid to lavish praise on our Lord. And if it means pausing and reflecting, or if it means jumping and shouting with praise, or if it means laying down and weeping for the forgiveness that you know you've experienced in your life, I invite you to do that. And I know that for some, some of you still have like old brethren programming and you're like, oh, I wanna, no, 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 don't do that. Override it today. And I want to experience this together.